It is? Yeah. You sure? Yeah. Okay. We're recording? Yeah. All righty. Welcome, <laughs> listeners, to episode nine of Know Your Enemy. I'm one of the podcast co-hosts, Matt Sitman, and I'm here with my good friend, Sam Adler-Bell. Hi, Matt. That hey. sounds like a little bit sarcastic when you said it just now. I know that well, I'm your good friend, but just like the I tone know, of voice. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this is a, a really interesting episode we have for you. Uh, our, our guest today, this is our second guest, is Max Alvarez, uh, host of the Working People podcast. But before we get into that and before we introduce him, we wanted to do our usual housekeeping uh, a few things to be aware of. Once again, we thank all of you who are supporting us on Patreon and uh, rating and reviewing us on iTunes and generally sharing the podcast and spreading the word. But if you haven't done any of those things or you're interested... Stop just... listening to podcasts. We don't want to know you. We don't want to hear from you. <laughs> right. You ingrates. Um, or you can uh, cough up some money oh, right. uh, on the good. Patreon. And, and again, for those of you who pay us $10 or more a month, just a reminder that our friends at Descent, who are now kind of sponsored Answering the podcast, uh, have made available a digital subscription. Right. Uh, I think most of you who um, have already signed up for that should that should be processed. You should be getting the fall issue of Descent. We can now say that we have hundreds of Patreon subscribers because we have, I think, exactly two hundred. It might be just a little over two hundred. Yeah. Last time I checked. So for, for you know, right. but we're we're grateful for all of you. We're grateful for our friends at Descent. And yeah, I think I think that's all we have for housekeeping items. Sam's going to be traveling abroad, uh, basically not long after we finish recording this. Uh, so our bonus episode will probably be Sam and I. It'll be transatlantic. Yeah, that's true. But Sam, do you want to introduce uh, our guest and yeah. and talk a little bit about the, this episode? So Max Alvarez, Maximilian Alvarez, um, is a really brilliant writer editor. Um, he's based in Baltimore, and his work has been featured in The Baffler, Boston Review, Current Affairs, and In These Times. We're definitely going to include a couple links to his work in the show notes. Uh, he's a dual PhD candidate in history and comparative literature at the University of Michigan and the host of Working People, quote, a podcast by, for, and about the working class today. And as we will, as we discuss in the episode, um, in our conversation, You'll learn a lot more about working people in our conversation. But Max is somebody that I met when I was reporting on the J20 protests, and he was doing sort of solidarity work around that stuff. He's a great writer and a, a very, very kind man. Mm -hmm. um, so we're thrilled to have him on. Um, so I guess that's all. Enjoy uh, this conversation. It goes you know, deeper into some of the personal experiences that both Max and Matt had growing up as conservatives and different circumstances, but with some overlap. Um, and, and working I, class conservatives. Working class conservatives. And that's, that's kind of the theme of the episode is what is working class conservatism, blue collar conservatism? How do we understand it? How has it played out? You know, how do we understand the last 40 or 50 years of American political history, especially with reference to working class conservatism? So it's, it's a wide ranging conversation. As you can tell, we're recording this after we talked to Max. Uh, and Max was just great. So I was really, really proud he was willing to come on and really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, so uh, enjoy the conversation. Here's uh, Max Alvarez. And I had a bus stop off the county line Smoking beneath a for sale sign Watching all them cars as they roll along 
sometimes I wish I could tag along. All right, Max Alvarez, welcome to Know Your Enemy. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Love the show. Love the work that y'all are doing. Thank you. We love your show. Thanks, Max. There's a lot of mutual um, affinity in this virtual room. Yes. Uh, yeah, there's, <laughs> we got hello affinity up in here. <laughs> High affinity. Um, the reason we wanted to have Max on, and we've been trying to get this together for a long time, we finally have it. Uh, unfortunately, Max uh, is sick and we're like forcing him to do this anyway. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> That's right. Uh, if anyone's listening out there, um, help. <clears throat> the know your enemy boys have kidnapped max alvarez and forced him to do a podcast uh but the reason we wanted to have max on is because we want to have a discussion about working class conservatism or blue collar conservatism and uh obviously we're going to have to talk about and problematize those terms up at the start but partially that's because max and matt have a sort of overlapping experience of both growing up working class and conservative Right. Well, and, you know, this is, um, um, so I think it'll be, yeah, it'll be really fun to learn more about Matt's experience, um, growing up conservative. And, you know, I've, I've, I've talked about this quite a bit on, on my show, Working People, because, you know, the, the very first interview that I ever did for that show, um, before I even really knew what I wanted the show to be, was with my dad, um, Jesus Alvarez. Uh, oh, I haven't is, listened to that episode. That sounds oh, great. Wow. Shit, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's a there's a whole backstory into it, and I kind of described it in a piece last year for Current Affairs called uh, "Can the Working Class Speak?" And you know, I guess to to kind of give uh, listeners like the Spark Notes version, you know, my my experience um, is uh, is kind of an interesting one, right? Because like you know, growing up. All we heard about was kind of like stories of, you know, poverty and struggle um, from both sides of the family. Like my dad, he was born in Mexico. You know, his father abandoned them before he was even born. He was living with his mom and his um, three siblings in a little shack in Tijuana. And then his mom died uh, of cancer when he was six. And, you know, then he and his siblings were actually split up. Um, and brought over to the U.S. separately. You know, they lived in foster care. They worked a lot of shitty jobs. Like, so we, we heard all about that growing up. And then, you know, from my mom's side of the family, the white side, the, the Prather side, uh, my, my gramps, uh, Fletcher, you know, he comes from Charlotte, North Carolina, and he would always, he's like the human embodiment of, uh, like Foghorn Leghorn. <laughs> Like he's got the same build, the same way of the talking. Same build. <laughs> yeah, he's the same build. I swear to God. Um, kind, of, kind, of, kind of pear shaped. <laughs> very, very pear shaped. Um, he's he's just such a great fixture in the family. He's got so many stories, and I mean, like he 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 had a very. A small kind of formal education and so for him he was always harping on us to get a good education mm-hmm. and to have a good vocabulary and stuff like that so we got that from both sides of the, of the family and then yeah i mean my my mom you know grew up in compton my dad you know was living in south central um when uh he and uh, his foster family uh, were living there for this a while is la area we're talking about but you know i my siblings and I, we kind of grew up in about a decade and a half period where it felt like, 
you know, our family had kind of clawed its way to uh, some semblance of middle classness, uh-huh. right? You know, mm-hmm. we, you know, we grew up, um, and and they made a conscious decision to kind of try to raise us in Orange County instead of L.A. County, which as listeners will probably know, Orange County is an incredibly conservative place traditionally. Right, the sort of the sort of like seat of Reagan Republicanism. Very much so. And my, you know, my mom, you know, is very much a Reagan Democrat. She like has all these old bumper stickers from Reagan and stuff like that. So anyway, the, the, the point being is that my, my siblings and I were, were privileged enough to kind of grow up, um, at least for a, a little while in, you know, like this more middle class life for about 10, 12, 13 years. And then with the kind of Great Recession, that all collapsed. We lost everything. Mm-hmm. We lost the house that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, since since then, yeah, it's been, you know, just my, my dad's been driving Uber. My mom has done any job that she can find, you know, including giving samples at Sam's Club and stuff like that. But, but she is an interior designer by trade and a brilliant one at that. And so it just broke my heart you know to see them kind of take on the full weight of a of a global economic collapse and and internalize it as a deeply personal failure right and and you know it's still very hard to kind of get them not to do that yeah and you know i think i i started the show because all of us you know in this period of losing our homes of going deeper and deeper into debt like i was in grad school when we lost our house and before that i was living at home working in like factories and warehouses for 12 hours a day as a temp uh-huh. and um you know it was in it was just in that period that you know we all really started to kind of close in on ourselves and and like i said really internalize these kind of deep systemic epi- economic problems as kind of um personal failings on our part that somehow we could have and should have stopped right and we were just i think constantly berating ourselves and punishing ourselves for that right. and i i decided to you know have a recorded um conversation with my dad just about his life and about the process of of again like making his way from like a sizzler cook and a car wash attendant to owning a home to then losing that home to then driving Uber and all that stuff. Um, my dad is a, again, a you know Mexican immigrant, working class Mexican immigrant who voted for Trump. And, you know, I wanted, I, I wanted to kind of figure all that out. And I wanted more than anything to give each of us a chance to really, uh, open up to each other. Cause my dad's not a very talkative guy or he wasn't. And, you know, that the whole point of, of working people is to give workers from around the country a chance to just talk about their lives, their jobs, their dreams and their struggles yeah. as a, class consciousness raising project as a solidarity building project but also just as a kind of deeply human project of of trying to reconnect with each other and break the sort of like alienating mold that so many of us are kind of cocooned within in in late capitalism and it's so great it's an amazing project i i have a we have this like rough outline that we put down together and at the end of it it says big enormous plug for max's amazing podcast and patreon <laughs> um <laughs> which we will definitely do in addition to uh praising it right now but it really is a great project that comes from a place of love and hope and solidarity and uh it's a great inspiration to us so if you're a fan of know your enemy then you will be and should be a fan of working people i want to like 
bring Matt Sitman into this discussion too, sort of to describe maybe the parallels and non-parallels of his family's experience. And then I want to back up and sort of talk about what the conservative ethos um, of your respective households was. Sure. You know, I understand they sort of, you sort of intimated part of that, Max, when you were talking about like the sort of sense of shame and blame that you're, family associated with like economic trials and tribulation but uh i'm gonna go back there but first let's sort of let's hear sort of some of the the sitman uh saga yeah i think what i'll do is you know play off of what max said a bit because certain things that you said max really resonated with me and one was you know neither of my parents went to college none of my grandparents went to college it was sort of me and my cousins were the first generation to really you know, go away to school, go to college. And what I'm getting at is that there was nonetheless a kind of, you said, kind of climb your way to maybe the the lower rungs of middle class life uh, before the recession hit. And I definitely think that was a major part of how I grew up was that, you know, my dad's parents, my, my grandma, his mother, my grandmother, um, she, her father came over when he was very young from Italy and and my grandfather uh, was his father was like an alcoholic, so like Italian immigrant is what was my grandmother, and then like the son of an alcoholic who grew up very poor was my grandfather. And by the end of his life, my grandfather had like kind of risen up in a factory to almost a, a kind of supervisor type position, foreman. foreman kind of position. And so there really was a sense. And my dad later worked in that same factory. Uh, until he started a small business that he still still runs now. And on my mom's side, it was mainly like German stock, like central Pennsylvania, German stock. Um, very blue collar and working class there too. Um, but what I'm getting at is that there really was a sense that we had kind of like gotten to a place of relative stability. And I wouldn't even really call it middle class because where I grew up, it was like a small town in central Pennsylvania. Like, I don't think it's quite what you would call typical middle class life, uh, but like stable working class economic situation. But I think how that functioned was a sense of that if you kind of work hard and play by the rules, you can you can like make it in the United States. And, and that kind of factored into how they understood like welfare and the people in my town who were on some kind of assistance and the kind of difference between being poor and, and in need of some kind of government assistance and being like relatively stable working class was attributed to like work ethic and, and what you've earned and kind of yeah. the way you live your life. And for me, that's, um, th- that's one of the things is in thinking about this episode and some of what we might talk about that really fascinates me is is the way m- my parents uh, and and you know I would say some of my grandparents too to some extent um, kind of understood how they had gotten to this position um, and how they viewed the government how they viewed economics how they viewed like the basic concept of dessert how people ended up getting what they had in life so can I ask a yeah. question for both of you then? Um, so like, I guess I hear, I'm hearing a little bit of sort of like what the economic sort of conservative ideas consist of, uh, at least for Matt, is sort of like this, these ideas of, of like hard work, um, dessert, um, that, that people mm-hmm. uh, 
um, an expectation of upward mobility. Yeah, and that like Matt's generation. I would go to college, yeah. and and my dad would say like, go to college because you. Ne- I never want you to work in the factory I worked in. Right. You know. Um, but I would be interested to hear from both of you, um, sort of what the cultural uh, conservative milieu was, and how those values how you guys experienced those values and what they were for your family. Well, I'll say something and then also pose a question to you, Max, to kind of follow up from what Sam said. Because I do think one one particular aspect of the way I grew up was we were also very conservative fundamentalist Christians. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned that before on the show, but and, and the word fundamentalist here is not a pejorative. They would, my parents would describe themselves as fundamentalists. And that was a major element of the conservatism. Like I didn't grow up in a particularly political family and it's not like we talked that much about issues and economics. Um, the only thing I really remember my dad complaining about was NAFTA in the nineties. Um, I do remember that, but for me, a lot of the conservatism I grew up with was because of the, my religious background and my family's religious convictions. And so that meant just that on the whole slate of cultural issues, like uh, how you understood the rule of women, uh, how you understood things like abortion or, or gay rights or any kind of th- those hot button moral issues, like there was just a conservatism on the basis of our religious faith. And that drove more of, I think, the, the kind of political instincts I grew up with than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just kind of expected that like you would vote Republican because that's that was the party that was against abortion. It was against gay rights. It kind of held to more traditional understanding of the role of men and women in society and yeah. so on. Um, and can you put yourself and, back in the mindset when that was sort of like your normative moral framework? Oh, yeah. Like I was a true believer. Yeah. So like in my high school, I ran our Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a part of being a fundamentalist meant you did have this posture toward the world that was one of being under siege. Mm-hmm. And, and in a way, because like, when I said I didn't grow up that political, that meant that kind of like religion came first, your faith came first. And there was a sense in which, yeah, you'd vote, but, but you, it, it was just this kind of obligatory thing. I think this, is, this was where it, the difference between, say, growing up fundamentalist and just growing up as a conservative evangelical might be different, mm-hmm. whereas the fundamentalist still had the suspicion of the world as such. Right. And, and so the, poli- the politics really was downstream from the religious stuff and was not that emphasized. And that's kind of what I want to ask you, Max. Like, was there a religious element to your upbringing? Because that, again, uh, that was probably the main source of the conservatism I grew up with. And it connects to political issues. Like, I do think there's a way in which the fundamentalist Christianity I was raised with complements the sort of uh, economic dimension we were just talking about, that, you know, you kind of work hard, you you should live a certain way, and if you do those things right, you'll be rewarded. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, You know, I I grew up um, very Catholic, very conservative. Um, You know, I was baptized, First Communion, confirmed the whole nine yards. Um, and my name actually comes from St. Maximilian Colby. Oh, nice. um, and yeah, I mean, you know, and th- and this is like a big um, factor that we can probably talk about in a little bit, right, about the 
political discussion about, you know, race, right? I mean, because I think it's been a long running talking point for Republicans. You saw this a lot with, um, especially in like the 2012 election, right? That, that Latinos are like natural born Republican voters because, uh, so many of us are religious. But, to your to your point, Matt, um, politics um, was not a very big um, mm-hmm. kind of constant topic of discussion in our house. And, you know, I think that politics being downstream from culture thing, you know, very much applies to where our conservatism came from, mm-hmm. um, both in terms of the Catholic Church and, you know, all the kind of like moral baggage that that came with that. I mean, shit, I remember, uh, you know, I got grounded for like six months when my parents found out I lost my virginity. Um, oh, damn. <laughs> like, shit. I mean, I'm talking like I, I had a bed, a desk, and that was it for those six months. And I remember, yeah, like for, you know, my confirmation going and confessing and, <laughs> you know, during this kind of church retreat in the woods and then just kind of having my Alyosha Karamazov like moment falling <laughs> to the ground and, and weeping and just feeling so cleansed. Uh-huh. Um, Damn, I need that. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> you know, but it, yeah, it felt good at the time, but it was also looking back, it was really fucking weird, right? Um, totally weird. So, but anyway, um, cultural conservatism was kind of like a constant source of like ideological air conditioning uh-huh. for me and my family uh-huh. like it really just kind of dripped in through the vents of things like talk radio the church you know even just the the movies that we would watch and then when fox news came around i remember my folks kind of having it so it was more like those things did the politics talk for us uh-huh. um you know, I, I really think that it can't be underappreciated um, just how big of an influence talk radio has in a place like Southern California. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's Southern California. You spend most of your fucking time in the car. Right, right, right. There was a lot of time to kind of marinate in that sort of cultural air conditioning. Mm-hmm. And my dad would typically have on, like, Rush Limbaugh, Dennis Prager. Um, but also, both he and my mom really listen to uh, a lot of Larry Elder. Um, and my mom, I think more than anyone else, had uh, Dr. Laura Schlesinger on the radio a lot. You know, I want to I want to talk about Larry Elder for a second. Just to, we'll, we'll take him as kind of the prime example, because I, I think he did have a really outsized influence on the way that my family and, and me and my siblings kind of thought mm-hmm. politically in that time. Right, because Larry Elder, he was uh, he was black, mm-hmm. he was a uh, libertarian, and convincing way of talking. Mm-hmm. Right, he's he, he's incredibly good at kind of you know rhetorical manipulation, and I think I think that was something that I could really point to and and help it helps me understand not only kind of what our conservatism was but how it kind of made its way through you know like our racial and ethnic identities in a way that made sense to us right so to tell us a little bit about like what that consists of because i'm not really familiar with larry elder as a east coast yeah. uh well east coast grown up like red diaper baby uh <laughs> obviously well, I mean, you know, race race was a big thing for for Larry Elder. Um, you know, he he very much um 
kind of occupied this space, especially in the late 90s, um, as the voice in the wilderness for black Americans and, and, you know, people of color in general, at a time when he saw, you know, this um, kind of extreme, like, racial victimization complex embodied in things like the OJ trial, Al Sharpton, and, and I mean, Al Sharpton was a constant whipping boy for Larry Elder, mm-hmm. right? And, and, you know, I think I think a lot of people will kind of like intuitively get a lot of that ideology because, I mean, we hear it all the time on the right, you know, about, you know, how the left always claims itself to be a victim. The left is always looking for kind of systemic problems to excuse their own personal failings. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was very much in the vein of like, you know, the, the Bill Cosby message yeah. of, of kind of individual self-determination and personal responsibility, pull your pants up kind of, you know. Yeah, conservative. That was that was very much his brand, um, and like I said, it was packaged in a very kind of convincing kind of rhetorical strategy. Where you know he's he's a master at kind of straw manning um, the arguments <laughs> from liberals and the left, and then just cutting them down with single punctuated sentences like ridiculous or absurd or nonsense. <laughs> yeah, right? right. And and <clears throat> he very much invites you into having a sense of intellectual superiority. Yeah, um, vicarious kind of like uh, as you're listening and to to give to give folks like an example i actually went back and looked at you know one of his like most famous books and at the time was something that really kind of launched uh, his his career into the stratosphere at that time which is called the 10 things you can't say in america <laughs> i i distinctly remember this book being in like my parents bathroom like you know i remember <laughs> just seeing it all the time i think we had multiple copies <laughs> so what can't you say in america so in this, uh, I mean, <laughs> well, there there are ten things at least, but um, you know, in this section from Larry's <laughs> from Larry's book, which is called uh, "Let's Replace Affirmative Action with Affirmative Attitude," um, <laughs> nice. yes. you know, he so he writes, "quote A poll in the Los Angeles Times asked whether in America everyone has the power to succeed." Low-income whites were more likely to say yes to that statement than blacks earning $50,000 or more, exclamation point. Mm -hmm. At American dinner tables all across the country, most parents urge their children to work hard, study hard, and prepare. But in black households, how much dinner table talk revolves around the white man done me wrong, Mm -hmm. rather than focus on grit, hard work, and preparation. The formula for success is simple. Implementation is hard. As a high school friend put it, quote, anybody can talk the talk, but it takes a whole other set of nuts to walk the walk. And I'm going to pause here real quick because I just want you know folks to kind of be taking notes about all those cultural components that we've been talking about. And even more, you know, questions of self-determination and kind of individuality. You get questions of responsibility, personal responsibility, questions of like masculinity, rugged individualism, all that stuff. And, and so Larry continues. He says, so regardless of your race, gender or circumstance – Get ahead and stay ahead by following these 32 things. I'm not going to read all of them. <laughs> oh, shit. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, don't worry. But I'll read a few of them. So number one, there is no excuse for lack of effort. Two, although I may be unhappy with my circumstances and although racism and sexism and other isms exist, I know that things are better now than ever and the future is even brighter. Three. 
While I may be unhappy with my circumstances, I have the power to change and improve my life. I refuse to be a victim. Four, others may have been blessed with more money, better connections, a better home environment, and even better looks, but I can succeed through hard work, perseverance, and education. And parentheses, notice the term blessed there Mm -hmm. and the work that it's doing to explain uh, wealth inequality. Five, I may be a product of single or no parent household, but I will not hold anyone responsible for my present or allow anyone to interfere with my future. Others succeed under conditions far worse than mine. Six, some schools and teachers are better than others, but the le- but my level of effort, dedication, curiosity, and willingness to grow determine what I learn. Seven, ambition is the key to growth. I'm going to jump ahead. Eighteen, I will not seek immediate results as I understand life is a journey and not a destination. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Twenty-two, drugs are stupid. People who believe in drugs don't believe in themselves. All right, this <laughs> like, is the first one I disagree with. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it means to believe in drugs, but... Um, <laughs> I do. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I take that back. <laughs> okay, twenty-five, people are not born, quote, deficient in mathematical ability. Through hard work and dedication, the subject can be mastered. 26, it is essential that I learn to speak and write standard English. This is not, quote, acting white, but acting smart. 30, life is difficult. I expect setbacks and will learn from them. Struggle creates strength. So, again, like nothing here is incredibly new, um, but just imagine kind of having those sorts of points constantly reinforced for, you know, young Latino, you know, Max and his siblings, right? There's there's so much there that, I mean, I still see traces of it. The, The comment, no shit that I get, you know, more than anything else from people who listen to my podcast, from people who read my writing, is about how articulate I am and how I don't sound Mexican. Oh, wow. Um, And, I mean, I think, you know, in one sense, I'm like, I'm flattered that I am articulate. um, But in another sense, like... You know, th- this is this is very much part of that of the way that I was brought up and the yeah. way that I understood um, what my education meant, right. yeah. um, both in class and racial kind of terms. Right. Um, and a big, uh, I actually didn't want to do a podcast for a long time because I've always felt quite self conscious about how my voice doesn't really match up to the way that I look. Right, I look like a scary Mexican dude oh, with yeah. shaved head you're, and tattoos. You're, you're terrifying, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. But like, yeah. you know. I mean, I don't sound that way. Yeah. And, and you know, I very much bought into this whole that's not acting white, it's acting smart thing. Right. And yeah. there was a lot of tension yeah. there with my friends, especially my working class Latino friends who, you know, would accuse me and others at different points of being white. And, you know, that was an especially kind of hard thing to navigate for me and my siblings being mixed race, being in Orange County where there was a lot of white people um, and where class divisions were the – the the racialized nature of class divisions was very, very clear. Right. Uh-huh. 
you know, just uh, I, I know this is kind of like a long way of answering the questions that Matt put to me, but I guess I just wanted to kind of get people to see kind of like this this broader kind of arrangement of cultural and and uh, epistemological and existential factors yeah. that really I guess kind of yeah formed the the constellation of identity that I grew up with and believed in right. yeah. um, for so long, which included things like um, like the way I talk, the way I dress, what an education meant because to Matt's point we you know I was always education was the biggest thing that I got from both sides of the family and it was both one thing I wanted to add to that was that it was both a question of like upward mobility uh-huh. but but there was also I think a very important question of of dignity yeah there, right because I think another thing that was um, constantly reinforced to us was that education once once you get it it's like the one thing that they can never take away from. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, Max, this is fascinating to me. And one thing is that uh, I didn't mention this when I was talking about my background earlier, but I grew up in central Pennsylvania, uh, which was a, a very, very white part of the state. Um, I mean, I don't know if there was a single person of color in my high school, or at least in my graduating class. So the racial dimension was not there. But what, what I mean, it was there in a different way, like... You know, growing up in a small town, like cities with black people in them were considered like dangerous and scary. And I remember like when we'd drive to Pirates games, baseball games in Pittsburgh, like my parents would say things like, you know, keep the door locked <laughs> when you're at a red light or a stop sign, like driving around right. Pittsburgh. But even more, so just maybe bracketing the, the, the racial dimension, uh, but one of the biggest things that my dad especially reinforced with me growing up was the importance of like reading self-help books and when you were reading from larry elder i kind of had these like ptsd like flashbacks to (laughs) read to um like i remember reading uh the lakers former lakers coach pat riley his book his book the winner within and how to achieve success or my dad making me listen to these tapes from zig ziglar the self-help guru uh and my dad would tell me these lessons like um, never let other people determine your self-worth. Be a leader, not a follower. Uh, the friend group you hang out with. Like you will not raise them to your level, he would say. They will drag you down to theirs. Oh my God. So all these things that Elder was talking about was very much a part of my teenage years especially. Like once I got old enough to, you know, like play on sports teams and start thinking about my future and, you know, when school became more important – the, the self-help element was a huge part of my upbringing. That was such a core part of their conservatism yeah. and, and my conservatism growing up. And I'm kind of fascinated by that because in some ways it's not all bad advice. Like if, if, you, if you were going to if – if you had a friend who came to you advice, you wouldn't tell them to like not work hard, right? Or you wouldn't tell them they should really get into drugs, or you wouldn't tell them, you know what I mean? All, or yeah. You wouldn't tell them not to get an education. But when it kind of gets teased out into an ideology about the way like the broader economic system works or you know, the way we think about dessert and you know, why people suffer, why people are poor, why people experience certain things in life, uh, that's, that's yeah. kind of the interesting thing for me is, is the, when it goes from being a kind of personal advice to more of an ideology, then why does it connect with working class people? Why were our parents so enthralled to these ideas? I did want to say like one thing that one thing that struck me listening to both of your accounts of this this aspect of your conservative upbringing was that in some ways 
it is like uh, survival advice. Yes. And it's it's not like survival advice in a hostile world. Yeah, survival advice in a hostile world. But what strikes me about it is that it is fundamentally hostile, or at least committed to excluding the possibility of any kind of collective project. Right? It's all you have to rely on yourself. No one any any kind of any kind of sense of dependence on others is what is to be avoided. Down that path lies failure. And the last thing was just in specifically with the elder stuff, it, it does make me think about the account of racial oppression that is communicated or at least heard um, from a lot of mainstream liberal sources by working class people of color. Because like the hostility to the idea that you're fundamentally constrained by your race or like that you're never going to learn math math or like the, the implication is that they're hearing that from like mainstream liberal culture is that like race is like an ontological category that you can't escape and in some ways the, the response makes sense it's just that the response is communicated in the language of individualism um, to Sam's point about this militating against any kind of collective project, my my dad especially was very anti-union, despite being working class, despite working in a factory until he was 30, 35 years old. And it, and it was because as, precisely that unions, in his account, propped up the lazy workers. He didn't yeah. need a union because he was a kind of self-sufficient individual who worked hard and... And therefore, this collective enterprise of, of unionization like was not it wasn't a union shop he worked in and and my dad would describe to me like the suits coming in with like a chart saying, "This is how much you make, this is how much they make in Mexico or China or wherever they could possibly you know move this uh, move the work toward and and the implication was clear, yeah, right that like see, we could at the drop of a hat move this factory somewhere else, so you should be grateful you have this job yeah but but so that was a part of it thanks it a lot, was, NAFTA yeah, but it was also yeah that now my dad would mm-hmm. say that, but it was again, like you uh, the the hardworking individual did not need the protections of a union, and the only people who did were the lazy people who did not follow the advice of Zig Ziglar and Larry Elder and Pat Riley, yeah. <laughs> you know? To Matt's point, um, you know, like, there's, there's a, actually a very kind of clear, um, a clear dividing line within our family, right? Because, like, my extended Mexican family is almost, by and large, entirely Democrat. And uh, they all had union jobs, right? Mm-hmm. My Theo my Miguel was a teamster. My Theo Chano worked for the post office. So, you know, there, there, there was kind of a very clear sense of strong attachment to labor unions and the kind of old school democratic um, connection between uh-huh. organized labor and, and um, you know, liberalism. But on the white side of my family and, you know, in our side, my, my dad and my mom's side, we were very much in the kind of Republican camp. None of us had union jobs. My dad worked in real estate. He worked as, as like I said, a sizzler line cook, you know, car wash. My mom worked as like a bank teller. Um, you know, like no, none of these were unionized. Yeah. And my parents actually met at Sizzler, by the way. My mom was a waitress. Nice. <laughs> my mom, my um, mom was a bank teller, too, for a while. Well, I mean, like, and, and, you know, shit, I remember when, um, you know, kind of all the Me Too stuff was happening. My mom, my mom actually, you know, posted something about Me Too because she and her coworkers were harassed endlessly at the bank. People have no sense of how bad those bank teller jobs are. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds fucking awful from what she's kind yeah. of told me since then. But yeah, I mean, there was a very, very anti-union kind of sentiment in our family. And I think it was very much kind of in line with what Matt was describing. The union structure was understood to kind of detract from, you know, one, the, basically like how far you could go through your own hard work. That would be limited by the kind of, you know, hierarchical structure, uh, tiered structure of unions, right? We very much bought into the whole, you know, if individual kind of work isn't um, kind of recognized and rewarded, then people are going to kind of sink down to, yes. you know the lowest common denominator interdependence is always a source of failure as opposed to a road to failure as opposed to a possibility of uplift right and and there's a lot of resentment there because without without kind of a broader context it seems deeply unfair that kind of immediate experience uh, of you as a worker trying to just make a buck and and you know do your hard work and gain some sort of kind of self-validation from that, that's going to seem deeply unfair to you. And yeah. I think this is uh -huh. something I really want to underline about what Matt said. And it goes to where I, where I hope we'll end up in talking about working class conservatism beyond the kind of um, standard Marxist uh, or, or orthodox Marxist frame of you know, false consciousness right. and people just kind of voting against their own interest and being duped into siding with um, the bosses who are there to exploit them, right? You know, this is something that I think uh, the Democrats forgot long ago, um, but that I – and I see some leftists kind of forgetting it, but I think um, – you know, there there are more people today who are very much kind of understanding and, and directing their efforts towards the fact that, you know, working people respond to um, kind of their immediate surroundings and, and the ways that, you know, kind of our daily grinds, what that what that means for who we are and what our worth is um, when we look in the mirror. Right. And so, you know, if those kind of immediate kind of tangible ways of understanding ourselves and our place in the world. Right. Conservatism and, and conservative values are incredibly good at um, kind of lifting those up, yeah. right. you know, putting a spotlight on them. Yeah. And that means something to people. That means a whole hell of a lot for people, especially people who are in a position in a, a society that gives them so little. Right. Yeah. I mean, like to to feel recognized for your hard work in a tangible way by getting, you know, even if it's just, you know, like getting employee of the month. Right. You know, or. Or kind of getting some sort of bonus, right? I mean, like that, that means just a whole hell of a lot more than a history lesson on the ways that the working class or, you know, people of color in this country have been systematically oppressed, yeah, which they have. Yeah. But again, it's just like about how people, people's political consciousness develops in kind of immediate interaction with their kind of like material circumstances right. huh. um, and the, the sort of feelings of validation and, and dignity and, and the, the ability that it gives them to kind of move forward in such an unjust world with some scrap of, of self-worth, yeah. right? I mean, that, yeah. that means something. Yeah. That's, that is very good, as Matt said. It's resilience lessons. Well, I think, I, I think a, another word we might include here is agency. It's the, the, the conservative ideology is an assertion of agency against, well, I don't know, Max, if you experienced this, but I also grew up with like a bit of a conspiratorial view of the world. Um, Expand on that. <laughs> yeah. And it was, I mean, sort of like forces arrayed against you, against which this kind of self-help 
clean living, hard work ethos was an assertion of agency. And, and I think some of this for me had to do with my religious upbringing in the sense of this, this branch of fundamentalist Christianity was big into the end time stuff. Hmm. So like big government, the UN, all that was kind of viewed with suspicion as possibly like leading to a one world state that would, you know, like persecute Christians. Uh, and I, I remember one time, this is just an aside, but I was sitting in Sunday school and we were studying the book of Revelation and a woman in, in this class raised her hand and she said, do you think Henry Kissinger's the Antichrist? <laughs> and, and, and now, and at the time I was like, you know, no, the Antichrist is probably the Pope and the Secretary General of the UN, not Henry Kissinger. <laughs> but now I do look back and I think, well, she was right. Henry Kissinger is kind of the Antichrist. Um, but th- that was also a big part of kind of the background to this assertion of agency and the self-help ethos was something like the world is full of dark and scary forces that we don't really understand. And the best we can do is this kind of assertion of agency against that. And it's, you know, like my parents, this might not have been the case with you exactly, Max, but like my parents grew up, I grew up in the small, same small town my parents grew up in, which was the same small town their parents grew up in. Neither of my parents to this day have ever been on an airplane. Like the way they think about the world is just the suspicion of the outside, of the government in D.C., of the U.N. in New York, of, of these kind of – the big institutions that kind of structure the forces of our lives. They, it was like there's no chance of fixing those things. So the best you can do is to adopt the self-help ethos and assert your agency against it. And so it was just – it was – and it kind of feeds into the right-wing ideology in the sense of uh, just a pessimism about fixing anything at a structural or systematic level. The, the, the thing that, I, that I'm, I'm maybe just going to try to articulate something that I tried to articulate earlier a little bit better, an assertion of individual agency against forces, structures arrayed against you, unequal power structures, like – and especially insofar as – it's a reaction to the way that liberals talk about the way the world works. It suggests to me like the failure of Democrats to communicate what they really mean about structural inequalities. Do you know what I mean? Like, because if you're, if you're, and, and I think it's true, like Democrats haven't like been advocating collective action as a first principle for, <laughs> for, you know, as a, in their campaigns for a long time. So if you're just hearing everything is unequal and the forces are arrayed against you and you're never going to get out of it, then like an assertion of, assertion of agency against that system is, makes sense. It's a sensible reaction. Um, and, you would might, and you would like chafe at the idea that you individually can't you know, transcend. Yeah. Well, and this is what some of the family history that Max talked about and that I touched on matters too. Like, you know, uh, so my grandfather, my dad's dad, was the son of an alcoholic who grew up extremely poor. Again, over the course of his life, he, he got better and better jobs and rose to this like fairly good position in this factory as like a foreman or manager type. And it's like, well, why would you agitate for like some kind of collection, collective action, both against the backdrop, again, of kind of a, a pessimism about what that would even mean, but when you have these examples at hand of people in your family who, who clean themselves up 
and worked hard and actually lived a good life and provided for their family. That's what you should focus on, not caring about what the goons in D.C. are doing or what the you know uh, goody two-shoe liberals are proposing. Yeah. You know, it was it, that individual focus is, is what came to the fore. Right. You know, I think that our brand of conservatism, which I understand, you know, to be a, a, a more kind of widespread understanding, especially among like Latinos, is um, is more or less um, not necessarily a conspiratorial view of the powers that be, but something that that you guys have talked about on the show before that is more uh, of a of a kind of like philosophical resignation to kind of just the, the, the inherent unfairness of society in general. Um, and mm-hmm. if that is the case, if, you know, like there is kind of a recognition, which you could see in what Larry Elder, you know, kind of wrote about in, in that book, if there is a recognition right. that life is unfair, but, you know, like there are things that you can control, mainly yourself, your own hard work and, and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. Right. Um, exactly. You know, I think that was really kind of the the linchpin. You know, this this is like something that that I really remember quite distinctly about how my folks raised us to kind of understand our our race and our um, kind of conservatism in a way that again made total sense. It was not it was not like a duping in in any kind of way or form. It made so much sense that. You know, I think I actually owe a lot of my own education to believing in this for so long, right? But, um, <clears throat> you know, my mom always said that that she didn't want us to be defined by our race, right? And and again, this was taking this was taking place in um, an environment that Larry Elder and so many others were responding to, right? Where that notion of kind of a collective identity, whether it be class uh, based or race based. Right there, there was um, kind of a sense that um, that Democrats, especially, were kind of taking it for granted that black and and brown people would vote for them. Right there was this sort of um, kind of assumption that because of um, where we fit into kind of society, that our kind of class and race or racial and and cultural interests align more closely with the Democrats. And whether or not that was true. What it was also true was that the way that that was kind of packaged to us, right? There really weren't a whole lot of like really great, smart examples of people making an argument for this sort of liberal or even vaguely left-leaning mindset, right? We got like yeah. fucking, you know, Hannity and Combs and Combs always look like a moron, right? <clears throat> um, and, <laughs> yeah. and again, like Al Sharpton was, you know, always kind of sound-bited and, and replayed on Fox News and stuff like that to convince us that, that yeah, there was a kernel of, of um, kind of victimiza- of a victimization complex that – clashed yeah. with mm-hmm. something that we had put a premium on which was again that sort of um individual agency as matt said and so right. you know my mom you know didn't like saw in something like affirmative action um a program that um put the my race before my individual ability and that very much kind of clashed with, uh, like I said, like the kind of hierarchy of values 
at the very top of which was my own individual agency and capacity for self-improvement through hard work and so on and so forth. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that that coupled with a kind of just baseline acknowledgement that life is not fair, which again, in, in, you know, racialized kind of communities in this country and immigrant communities in this country, right? That is made manifest in, in more ways than one, right? I mean, the unfairness of life mm-hmm. is, is written throughout our family's history. Like, of course, my dad faced mm-hmm. racism. Of course, my mom faced sexism. Of course, we faced racism, right? You know, like it was, it was more just kind of you, you kind of accepted that you knew it was a factor but you believed that you know like individual self-determination was an area of an unjust society that you could control when you accept that the world is so unjust and unfair when you when you understand in in tons of kind of experienced and embodied ways kind of how the deck is stacked against you and you know like like i said like you know People need a, a way to kind of rationalize their experience and and understand their place in the world and to believe in, you know, the value of living. And they need to have some sort of kind of meaning in who they are and what they do in a way that makes them feel dignified, that makes them feel useful, that mm-hmm. makes them feel seen, right? And, and that is something that I think kind of the micro – level of kind of conservatism does incredibly well. But one of the big problems with conservatism, and again, this isn't a a question of false consciousness, this is um, something different. But I think mainstream Republican conservatism for so long has kind of extrapolated those very real and, and viscerally felt logics of um, this kind of conservative worldview. And they have they have they have yeah. projected it onto the macro level of politics and economics, uh, a much much more mm-hmm. complex yes. systems that that like that logic doesn't you know map onto perfectly, but that you know because people yeah. understand its its uh, draw and feel its draw and and have seen its kind of benefits personally, that is what is what kind of convinces them that it may work on a larger level. And I think that this is why, you know, a left kind of politics that is focused on building working class solidarity and that is really kind of countering the the vicious reactionary forces in our world needs to understand that the project, uh, whether it be of socialism or something else, has to be harness has to harness that kind of immediate individual engagement it has to give people that sense of of uh usefulness and and dignity it yeah. has to be workplace yes. democracy you know it has to be kind of community, community right it has to be something that they can feel and touch and see and be a part of in their daily lives those comments were just great max and uh you know, despite some of the differences in how we grew up, uh, it's some of the resonances are really <laughs> fascinating for me to hear. But one question I had, and maybe this can help us pivot to, uh, you know, not necessarily moving away from our personal experiences, but kind of teasing out some broader lessons from history and and thinking about politics now. Uh, and that would be something like, you know, well, this is putting it way too broadly, but kind of how did we get to this place? Because I was thinking. You know, even when I think about my own family, um, you know, I don't know my dad's parents. I have no idea what their political views were. Both of them are are, are dead now, so I, I I genuinely don't know. I never heard them utter a political word, but I do know my mom's parents, especially her dad, my my maternal grandfather. 
Um, he was a li- is he's still living. He's, he's in his eighties. He's a lifelong Democrat, and I and like uh, very much that was a thing. Like election season, like he would you know mention that he was voting for the Democrat because he was like a working class guy, and Democrats were like friend to the workers. And I'm interested in maybe how that generational story in my own family might illuminate some of what's happened over the last 40 or 50 years in the United States. And that might kind of, again, lead us into a broader discussion. But I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm interested in this phenomenon of, again, if my parents, if, the, if we were all 50 years older, I don't know if my parents would have ended up conservative Republicans. You know, if they had some memory of the Great Depression or they had some memory of Harry Truman or whatever, you know, would they have would they have kind of adopted this same politics? Because I do know, I mean, my parents, I've mentioned this before on the show, they are like prototypical Reagan Democrats. I'm fairly certain when they like turned 18 and could register to vote, they registered as Democrats and voted for Jimmy Carter. And then by the 80s, you know, they were voting for Reagan and have been Republicans ever since and have been self-consciously, I think, conservative Republicans for, you know, uh, about that same length of time. But just as a student of these matters, like, how do you how do you think about the Reagan Democrat phenomenon or how do you think about um, I know we can debate some of the numbers and like how many working class voters are voting for Republicans or Democrats or the white working class, how, how you think about that. But, but that broad question over like what's happened in American political life such that people like our parents are conservative Republicans in a way they might not have been generations back. A lot of it is kind of written into what we've been what we've been talking about here, right? A lot of the kind of history that you'll read um, about, you know, in terms of like the the kind of pol- shifts in our political economy over the past century, right? The various parts of that is written mm-hmm. into kind of what we've already talked about. Like I mentioned, my um, right. my grandpa, who yeah. very much grew up at the tail end of the depression, had his first job when he was five as a ball shagger at a at a golf course. Um, and, you know, like I said, like, I mean, he, he, he grew up dirt poor, um, you know, in North Carolina. He was one of like 12 or 13 brothers and sisters. <clears throat> he went to a, a friend's house one day and spent the night there. And when he came back, his family had moved and they didn't even notice that he was gone. Right. Um, and so he just walked around Charlotte until he eventually found someone who knew where they went. You know, like he, he, he's, He's told me in no uncertain terms that he's like, he's like, yeah, I probably would have been homeless at different times if it weren't for the Democrats, but I would never vote for them now. And, <laughs> you know, it always, it always, it always puzzled me. You know, it's also in what you talked about, you mentioned that, you know, your dad hated NAFTA, right? And, and, you know, this is, this has very much been the kind of framing, um, for our understanding of who the working class is and, and where the working class is, especially since, um, you know, the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. You know, like, because, you know, like things like NAFTA became such a pivotal, um, such pivotal talking points, right? We kind of like back stenciled our way, uh, into, um, a, a pretty kind of limited understanding of, of what the working class is because with NAFTA, you know, you had, um, kind of a lot of, you, you really kind of like, 
put a, a punctuation mark on a decades-long process of deindustrialization in America, um, mm-hmm. of the the kind of move away from kind of the more traditionally blue-collar jobs in like the roughneck trades, you know, like uh, you know, manufacturing, mining. Um, mm-hmm. And the wholesale dissolution of the labor movement, you know, attack the 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 the, the, the years long um, campaign to destroy. Uh, yeah, no, labor. I mean, like, and and you know, which which was really um, you know kind of sedimented with uh, Reagan's um, breaking of the Patco strike in in the eighties, right? I mean, that signaled yeah. to every um, capitalist shithead that you know it was open season on on labor unions, and we, you know. 30 40 what what 40 years later we have now we now have the lowest kind of uh, union membership in in our history um and so yeah you have a lot of these kind of intersecting forces like the kind of systematic um and coordinated and deliberate destruction of organized labor in this country um you had coincident with that stuff that like people like thomas frank have written about where um kind of the rise Mm -hmm. of the new democrats not only entailed um kind of a a shift towards more kind of republican um kind of values like uh, free trade and um, kind of uh, a stronger, more punitive criminal justice system, uh, a shift away from the Keynesian kind of um, social welfare state, so on and so forth, and a move towards kind of what they, what the new Democrats in the 90s saw as kind of the real future of American, of the American workforce, which was, you know, in tech, in, you know, um, kind of uh, Silicon Valley and kind of the more white collar Mm -hmm. professions, which is like the age that we grew up where it was like, if you want those jobs, which are going to be the new, you know, middle class blue collar jobs um, that, that we all aspire to, you need a good education. Um, and, um, that was, that was very much kind of what my siblings and I shop for. But at the same time, again, when we kind of talk about this in contemporary political discourse, like I said, we kind of back stencil ourselves into a, a, a limited frame of, of interpreting who we're talking about when we talk about the people that NAFTA, you know, and, and, and kind of um, global, globalized, you know, free trade policies, you know, who they really hurt the most, right? And, and you know, like that, that again, presumes a very... Um, kind of archetypal depiction of um, white, Christian, English-speaking citizens. Um, and it's a generally mm-hmm. presumed that they're, that they're male workers. But, you know, when that happens, you get, um, you know, the, the, the boom in um, kind of other sectors, right? You know, you get the, the kind of glut of service industry jobs um, where, you know, a lot of people of color, a lot of people in cities, you know, those are the jobs that, um, you know, they were working. And so now, you know, that service industry jobs, uh, home care jobs, farming, I mean, like these, these are, you know, really kind of the the staples of the American workforce. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, how maybe, you know, you mentioned Thomas Frank, um, you know, in preparing for this, you sent Sam and I a few, you know, different essays to read, uh, some on the historia, kind of the historiography of, of populism or the emergence of, of the new right uh, in the 60s and 70s, kind of the, the, the swelling of the power of the Republican Party um, and some of the, the shifts in who's, you know, how American voters 
you know, how they relate to the two parties, how working class voters relate to the two parties, how you know, so-called working class whites relate to the two parties. And maybe like what are the ways of telling that story that you find while well, either the ones that you find very vexing or the ones you find more persuasive? Because, right, there's there's different ways you can tell Good it. Question. You can tell a story about. Well, you know, in the 70s, kind of we saw the, the rise of neoliberalism. The Democratic Party, you know, moved right on economics. Uh, Bill Clinton, the Democratic Leadership Council, and so on and so forth. And so really, you know, it's, it's, and there's a way of telling the story that kind of blames Democrats. Uh, the Democrats made this shift, which meant that because the two parties converged on economic policy, at least to some degree, that meant that the real political battles were being fought over so-called cultural issues right or social issues uh or um even um you know i i was listening a few a few months ago to sherry berman the great scholar of social democracy on european social democracy on ezra klein's podcast and she pointed out that something very similar which is that uh in the context of like white identitarian politics when when the left or the left parties like the democratic party or the labor party in, in the united kingdom when they no longer offer a real economic alternative you're left fighting over identity like it raises the salience of race and ethnicity and and identity in that sense uh so you, you can tell that story like what happened to the left parties in the in in europe and the united states over a certain period of time uh you can you know talk about the broader economic changes uh you know you can again thomas frank what's the matter with kansas sort of a almost a false consciousness story that, you know, these, these conservative working class voters are voting against their material interests because they're kind of mesmerized by religious appeals. And yeah, and, it's like and, hallucinatory, you know, he says, but, but Frank yeah. also blames the Democrats for you right. know, so neoliberalism. He, so, so, so they, you know, some of these stories can combine in different ways, but uh, as someone who thinks a lot about these matters, like how do you think we should be telling this story? Or again, what are the ways, you know, we should not be telling the story? Or, or if I can even put it this way, is the story correct? Like, uh, you know, we assume that working class voters have moved steadily right, and especially white working class voters have, you know, infused the Republican Party with, uh, you know, a, a kind of uh, further voters, and, and that kind of is why Trump won, you know, the whole discourse around working class whites. So, like, how do you think we should be talking about these things or understanding these changes over the last few decades? Yeah, I mean, I, I think – so I think I could speak to the question itself rather than than being able to answer it, right? Because I think it is the right question. I think it's it's very important to recognize that, um, you know, the stories that we tell about history shape uh, kind of the ways that we act politically in the present. Um, and And – Again, it's it's very hard to kind of hold together all the kind of complex forces that um, have have shaped our political economy over the past half century. Because you know we we haven't even kind of touched on like kind of the the thesis of like racial and gender backlash from kind of the the sixties, right? Yeah, yeah. And we and we have uh, talked about that on the show before. So roll that in too, though. So yeah, like along with. Um, kind of understanding um neoliberalism the term that that Matt mentioned right like not as just kind of like a historical shift um in changes to different sorts of modes of production um different sorts of ways of of understanding the role of government um in people's lives and in mm -hmm. the economy right i mean that 
understanding it not only in those terms, but understanding kind of the rise of neoliberalism as a very kind of concerted, um, deliberate project um, that was that was kind yeah. of it's developed. Capital's response to the crisis of capital in the yeah, 1970s. Exactly. I mean, and this is this is something that you guys document incredibly well on your show. Um, and so, you know, it's it's hard again to hold together, right? Those sorts of um, kind of top-down, um, deliberate forces that um, fundamentally kind of changed the kind of logical arrangement of our society after um, kind of the boom post-war years. Right. We ha- also haven't even mentioned that, like, you know. We can't at all treat elections as a litmus for the preferences of the working class because, as we know, fewer and fewer working class and poor people in this country do vote or can vote or or are sort of given the opportunity to vote, like their lives are arranged in such a way that voting can be an important part of life. So, like, I mean, that's obviously one of the big ways in which people overinterpret from Trump because it's like, oh, the white working class went for Trump and that's why he won because he, like, sort of tapped into this populist dissatisfaction with the status of liberal capitalism or whatever um, while, you know, juicing it up with a bunch of racism. But, of course, we know, for one thing, most low-income people still voted for who voted, voted for Clinton. But also, we know that, um, uh, you know, less, considerably less than 50% of working class people voted at all, right? right? And, and we know from survey data that non-voters tend to be more economically progressive, more invested in redistributive economics writ large than voters are. So the preferences of voters and non-voters have also diverged in this same period of time. And uh, obviously the right has also engaged in a deliberate project of disenfranchising people. Um, so anyway, that's also just, something yeah, to keep no, on. I mean, I, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? I mean, I know I'm, it, it, I'm kind of like dilly dallying in terms of answering the question and it's because, you know, it's hard to, um, kind of see the effects of these broad historical forces that have shaped, um, kind of our, our country, uh, over the past 50 years, um, when we are so kind of regularly conditioned to, um, kind of interpret those within like the limited frames of the political narratives that we get largely from a pundit class mm-hmm. who takes like voter roles as kind of like the ultimate kind of compass, And one of the things that I try to kind of make clear to anyone that I talk to about this is that, you know, so many more of us are probably in the working class than we've been taught to believe. But, you know, going going to the, you know, effects that culture has – you know, there, there are many complex reasons for why so many of us don't or, or don't want to see ourselves as working class. You know, and, and we can, mm-hmm. we can, you know, get into that more if you, if you guys want, because I, I think it has, uh, you know, as much to do with the ways that the working class has been kind of simplified and, and stereotyped in popular culture as it has to do yeah. with the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, within the American mythos, working class has, so often function, like I was saying earlier, less as like a category of identity in and of itself, but as, you know, a sort of kind of relational foil to identity that that always kind of moves around depending on the context. You know, I actually mm-hmm. I actually just had um you know the brilliant journalist Sarah Smarsh on working people and we talked about this, mm-hmm. right? We we talked about how, you know, even growing up poor on a farm in Kansas 
she never really thought of herself or her family as poor or working class or, or working poor because, you know, as, as she kind of told me, you know, they, they always had a roof over their house. They always had food on the table, so they couldn't be working class. And that's and I think that's kind of mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. You know, for right. for a long yeah. time the category working class seems to have had more meaning as a permanent bottom that that people can define themselves against. I've mentioned this before on the show Max, but looking back, it is amazing to me that I really did not have a sense of class consciousness growing up. Uh your your interview with Sarah Smarsh, her comments there really resonated with me and I, you know, we don't need to get into it all here. But it was only after I kind of grew up and moved away and then found myself in contexts where I really was around genuinely wealthy people, whether it was old money or like some of my fellow students at Georgetown or, you know, moving now living in New York and, you know, just kind of knowing people from different backgrounds. That is what almost retrospectively gave me something like class consciousness. Uh, and I and I think that's a peculiarly American thing too, in some ways. Like the the, the idea that you of, of upward mobility of the American dream of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps means like class consciousness was always very attenuated uh, for me growing up because it, the expectation was that I would not live like my parents did right. or have the same jobs they did. So it was it, it was a uh, kind of identifying as working class as and and thinking that that meant something particularly for our interests and what that meant politically. That just wasn't really a part of our consciousness, strange as it might seem to be. Both of you were conservative and and Max we didn't really talk about like your conservative politics after your sort of childhood, but I know we've talked about it before, like that you were like a committed conservative when you went to college. Mm -hmm. And so to sort of wrap it up, and though, of course, this conversation could just never end, I'd be interested to hear what it was that, for you, Max, shifted you away from conservative politics. Yeah, I mean, I always feel the need to get ahead of this so I don't get myself canceled. But, um, you know, like I was very, yeah, very much a committed kind of conservative, um, when I got to college. Um, and my brother Zach and I both did our undergrad at the University of Chicago and he actually did econ there, right? And so, you know, there was, there was a lot. Damn. Yeah. There was a, there was a lot there for us to um, kind of relate to, and that really kind of I think uh, gave us um, kind of more of an intellectual kind of uh, scaffolding for that kind of loose cultural conservatism that that we grew up with. Pat Buchanan, who said the conservatism of the heart and the conservative of the mind, conservatism of the well, mind. Well, yeah, Pat Buchanan has described the kind of conservatism I grew up with as, as conservatism of the heart, and my experience was very similar, Max, in that like I had these instincts and impulses, and then when I went to college and became like a young, you know, right wing intellectual, it, it gave me, you know, different ideas and terms and concepts to yeah. like take those instincts and make it into something more of a self-conscious like ideology, but go yeah. on. Max. No, I mean, absolutely. And, and, um, but I guess it is, it is worth noting, right. That, um, you know, I, I mean, I would, I would love to hear you guys do like a whole episode on you Chicago. And I actually think like, like Zach, my brother, Zach would be a great person to have on. <laughs> we for should that. like hearing him, you guys and like Marshall Steinbaum talk about it would be like, good catnip for me <laughs> but um but i think they're yeah. be careful marshall's gonna hear this and he's gonna bug us because he's not been on yet <laughs> yeah um the the thing that i really want to kind of underline right is that my brother and i both you know kind of made it out of you chicago and and in the years since have have very much kind of 
we do not fit the mold, you know, like of, of what people expect U Chicago graduates to be. And there are a lot of radical people at U Chicago. But I think, um, like, like, you know, Matt was saying about that kind of like intellectual justification for the kind of impulses that you, we had, you know, kind of and were raised with. You know, I think that that actually kind of lent itself both to kind of like um, beefing up my initial conservatism, but also providing me a way out um, into kind of like my eventual leftism, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, that that was really kind of provided by literature, right? I mean, I had always wanted to be huh. uh, an MD growing up. I, I I always wanted to kind of go to med school and stuff like that, and I was a pre med bio major for my first couple of years at Chicago. But then, you know, I won't go into the whole story here, but I basically started kind of taking some electives in Russian literature, primarily, you know, digging into Dostoevsky, and and that ended up becoming just like you know my overwhelming passion. Um, and and I I honestly do think that like literature and Russian literature specifically really kind of it gave me another way to kind of understand a lot of the kind of conservative beliefs that I had and how they fit into kind of my own path to self-actualization and where I fit into kind of a broader society. We didn't, we didn't get into it here, but there's a great little short article by John Jost called Working Class Conservatism, a System Justification Perspective, right? And, and yeah. I mean, folks can check that out if they want. But there's a great quote in there from, from the scholar Robert Lane that says, um, quote, lower status people generally find it less punishing to think of themselves as correctly placed by a just society than to think of themselves as exploited or victimized by an unjust society. And, you know, I think mm-hmm. there's a really interesting kernel to chew on there, right? The notion that the people who are most fucked over by the status quo have the kind of the strongest existential compulsion to justify the existing social systems and, and authorities, outcomes, and economic arrangements that the system comprises, right? And, and mm-hmm. you know, I think that um, that literature um, allowed me to kind of understand and see how, like, you know, how deeply human my way of understanding um, my lot in life and, and everything that we talked about in the first half of this conversation, right? Someone like Dostoevsky really, you know, is just a master at, at kind of developing the individual consciousnesses of, of deeply complex characters and in deeply complex kind of historical conditions and showing how they interact and how they develop in conversation with one another. And that was kind of really the first time that I started to think deeply about how everyone else was just as complex as I was, right? And how... Um, you know, everyone was going through their own kind of deeply human processes of, of understanding and rationalizing their place in the world and, and, um, you know, finding kind of the most humane ways, um, to, to, again, understand, uh, their lot in life without, uh, while mitigating kind of the pain that, that it would cause them. And I think that, that, that was really kind of the, the light, you know, like in the darkness that allowed me to kind of, again, take those, those, um, 
elements that that made me kind of a more conservative person in the younger years of my life and understand where they were coming from and how much you know better republicans have been at manipulating them or harnessing them um than democrats have and and kind of how valuable and necessary it is for um any kind of left project and then i think from there the experience of the accumulated experiences of our family losing, you know, what what we had fought so mm-hmm. hard to to get, however little that was, um, the experience of um, working in, you know, yeah, restaurants, factories, warehouses, pizza delivery driver, all these kinds of things. I don't know. It just gave me a lot of time to, um, I guess, test that way of of understanding people and myself. Um, it was kind of a slow burn, but I think, you know, like you can hopefully see how I've tried to kind of um, use that sort of way of, of approaching kind of politics and, and the ways that people develop their own political consciousness uh, in the project of, of working people. Yeah, well, that's great, Max. It certainly resonates with me. Uh, and the, the general trajectory and the emphasis on people's complexity and including why people suffer, why they struggle, you know, that, that was a huge, uh, element for me. And it reminds me of, uh, speaking of literature, James Baldwin at the beginning of, uh, Giovanni's room has a great quote where he says, people are too various to be treated so slightly. And I've always liked that. It's lovely. Hell yeah. Well, I think that's actually an excellent place to wrap up, um, I'm extremely grateful to you, Max, and to you, Matt, for uh, carrying the weight of this conversation, which I think is really important and really compelling. And um, and Max, thank you so so much for coming on, um, despite your uh, <laughs> illness, eating out. No, your thanks, thanks for having me, guys. This was a really fun conversation. Yeah, and I just want to say one takeaway for me from this conversation is that Max, anytime you're in New York, we really need to drink some beers and like. Swap hell yeah. stories. <laughs> <laughs> Sign yeah. me up. So obviously, and we'll uh, we're gonna put uh, links to working people and the Patreon and stuff in our show notes. But um, absolutely, listen to uh, Max's podcast. You can tell from this conversation that it's really, really excellent and thoughtful and sensitive, uh, just like Max. And so, um, yeah, full on know your enemy recommendation. Certified fresh yeah. working people. Yeah, thanks, guys. I, I mean, I really, really appreciate it. I really, again, love the work that y'all are doing. Um, I think it's really important and, and kind of to, to everything that we were just talking about, right? You know, we are not going to be able to combat, you know, the, the just kind of destructive forces that we are facing today if we do not understand that kind of the deepest, most kind of, um, human and and intellectual and cultural levels kind of like how these competing political and ideological forces are shaping the ways that that our fellow workers you know act in the world and and i think that um i see our projects as very much being part of the kind of same effort in that regard well thanks again max uh it, it was great thanks dude thanks for taking so much time yeah thank you all right bye-bye and it's my
All right, so that was our conversation with Max Alvarez. Um, I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Quick reminder, do sign up for the Patreon, rate and review us on iTunes. We love the reviews. Yes. Tweet about us. Share the episode when it's Tell out. your mom about us. Yeah. Marshall Steinbaum, I know you're listening. Uh, I was very proud that Max was a guest before you. <laughs> um, I'm, we'll see if that stays in. Yeah, it might not. Um, and uh, thanks for all your support. We're still having a great time doing this. And uh, is that it? A bonus episode will be coming up in the next couple weeks. Oh, yeah. You're going to get that bonus content soon. All right. Thanks a lot. Actually, you know, the joke I should have made was uh, that Max was our first University of Chicago graduate on the show. Not Marshall. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah. That's the thing about editing. You can make that. Yeah. Yeah, That's all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Know Your Enemy. uh, And uh, tune in next time. Bye, Matt. Bye-bye. La vida no.